Yes, 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 indeedy. This is the Fingers Podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Infante, also known as the Fearless Fingers Editor, also known as DJ Disappoint Your Parents. I'm broadcasting from the Fingers Studio here in sunny Charleston, South Carolina, straight into your ears in wherever it is that you are. How should I know? Today I'm going to be reading the most recent edition of Fingers, which was published on September 13th, 2021, under the headline, The Sinister Politics of Pouring Beers for Dead Troops. Yeesh. In what's become a bit of a trend, and a very welcome one, I'll say, this is already one of the most read Fingers stories that I've ever published, thanks not least to all the friends of Fingers who boosted it on social media. Much appreciated to all the guys, gals, and non-binary pals who did so. As a reminder, subscribers to the newsletter received this and all my stories directly in their inboxes as soon as I publish them. So if you'd like to become a subscriber, and I really hope that you do, please head to fingers.substack.com and enter your email address. That's fingers.substack.com. And hey, follow its.fingers on Instagram too if you're feeling saucy. That's its.fingers on Instagram. Without further ado, let's get to the read. The Sinister Politics of Pouring Beers for Dead Troops Late last month, restaurants, breweries, and bars around the country began putting out 13 full pints of beer to honor 13 American soldiers who were killed in a bombing in Kabul as the U.S. war machine withdrew from Afghanistan. One bar owner told USA Today that, quote, The community reaction has been overwhelming. Customers have seen the 13 beers and asked where and how they can help other military families. Some have offered donations, while others have thanked and hugged local veterans. These families, the sacrifices, and those soldiers who died deserve to be seen. So in our small way, we put our 13 beers to honor them, which isn't half of what they deserve. But it's something. Close quote. It is something, that's for sure. But what, exactly? There's a long-standing tradition of U.S. veterans ordering beers and shots for fallen comrades and prisoners of war or missing-in-action friends that they've lost. That's a deeply personal and intimate act, whereas this practice seems to have sprung up in response to a specific and highly politicized attack on U.S. troops to whom the participating businesses have more indirect connections. It also seems precision-engineered to harvest attention on social media. Unlike, for example, organizing to oust the politicians who would gladly march us back into another intractable conflict for the sake of flowing untold billions to the defense contractors that they plan on consulting for as soon as they leave office. Maybe these businesses are doing that, in which case, great. But it still wouldn't answer the question of why this is a thing now. The U.S. military was in Afghanistan for 20 years, and while 13 American soldiers dead is indeed a tragedy, it pales in scope to the 2,500 U.S. troops who have died in Afghanistan since 2001, not to mention the 66,000 Afghan troops and 50,000 Afghan civilians killed in the conflict. No beers for them, I guess. Have bars been doing this for the entire duration of the war and I just missed it? A couple of friends of Fingers had sent me this story, thanks to Pete J. and Justin G., and I was flummoxed by it, so I put that question out on Twitter. From what I can tell, none of my followers had seen this either. A lot of people chimed in about individual vets buying drinks for fallen friends, or restaurants setting up a missing man table. 
But again, those seem like distinct rituals from this one, in which for-profit businesses use perishable liquid in highly choreographed responses to a discrete news story. So assuming this is new, why? And why now? Sure, there's a Democrat in the White House these days, but partisan politics alone don't explain this. The GOP flogged the 2012 Benghazi attack into a bumbling and terminal congressional investigation, an entire feature film starring John Krasinski, and one of the first mainstream political memes. I don't remember conservative bar owners wasting beer to own the libs on Facebook back then, or following other fatal attacks on Americans in the back half of the last decade once the platform had red-pilled a critical mass of users beyond recovery. Unfortunately, USA Today never got around to asking those business owners about this discrepancy, and neither did the Today Show or Fox News or any of the other mainstream outlets that ran with this as a feel-good story. But Kelsey D. Atherton, writer of the newsletter Wars of Future Past, offered me a very plausible answer on Twitter. Quote, I don't know about the empty table with full glasses specifically, but it's part of the broader ritual honoring the dead by pretending their deaths were wholly apolitical. Ah, yes. Doing politics by refusing to do politics. A classic. Atherton linked me to a piece he published in late August, just before the pint thing hit the headlines, in which he details the popular feint of, quote, limiting coverage of the dead to the impression shared by public mourners and flattening expressions of grief into a reaffirmation that questioning the war means dishonoring the dead, close quote. That certainly tracks here and reminded me of something Luke O'Neill over Welcome to Hell World wrote a while back. Quote, I was trying to figure out why the patriotic people in America love dead troops so much but don't seem to care about the living ones. I guess it's a lot like how they love the unborn. A dead troop and an unborn baby aren't actual people you have to take care of anymore, or yet. They're just an idea you can do whatever you want with. And what the fuck are they going to say about it anyway? Their bones aren't even moving. Close quote. O'Neill was writing about a memorial involving flags, but... Beer is actually an ideal beverage for washing down the bloody consequences of American politicians' devotion to waging war. It's an approachable, available commodity that also doubles as a symbol of friendship and community and common ground, which is why centrist types like to wring their hands that Democrats and Republicans can't simply set aside their differences and have a beer with each other as Americans. Ironically, some of the only common ground both parties can still find these days is spending trillions on unnecessary wars. Beer is relatively cheap, too, so bars have no problem spending some of it for this observance. Best of all, American drinkers like beer and don't want to think about it as politics, which they hate. Considering all that, setting out pints for dead troops reads like a somber, albeit vaguely commercial, sacrifice at an altar. Like I said in my tweet, it's a nice enough idea, except that in this allegory, the altar is built to an American experience where it's normal and even expected to regularly have dead troops to honor with Facebook beer homages. To accept this shtick as dogma, which we already have with so many other performative liturgies of troop respecting, and to spread it like gospel on social media is to embrace the political orthodoxy that keeps getting American soldiers killed in the first place. Look, maybe all these bar and restaurant owners began putting pints out for dead soldiers in good faith, but divested a broader historical context and pumped out across Americans' news feeds? It looks a lot more like bad religion. Whiskey workers strike for a better contract.
As of midnight this past Saturday morning, production workers at Heaven Hill Distillery's Bardstown, Kentucky plant are on strike over the company's efforts to bake non-traditional work shifts into their new union contract. The old contract, ratified in 2016 by 66% of workers, expired last Friday at 11.59 p.m. United Food and Commercial Workers International Union represents the 420 Heaven Hill workers. Foreman Jerry Newton told WDRB, a Louisville news station, quote, During the pandemic and all that, the company has told us we'll remember you during contract time. Well, contract planning is here. They have showed us no appreciation. Close quote. Mark Gillespie of the industry blog WhiskeyCast reported that workers are particularly angered by the company's efforts to force them to regularly work weekends, rather than the typical Monday through Friday production schedule. Quote, They're family-owned and, hey, we want to treat everyone like family. Well, they're not treating these members like family, UFCW Local 23D President Matt Aubrey informed WhiskeyCast. The striking workers plan to picket at the company's sprawling headquarters, home to a popular visitor center that Heaven Hill recently renovated to the tune of $19 million. By Monday, those workers were out on the line. Of course, by the time you listen to this podcast, the situation may have changed up there. The company, which makes a bunch of bourbons like Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Old Fitzgerald, McKenna, and Larceny, plus Rittenhouse Rye, Lunazul Tequila, Deep Eddy Vodka, and other spirits brands, told WhiskeyCast in a statement that it will, quote, continue to collaborate with UFCW leadership towards the passage of this top-class workforce package, close quote. To avoid embarrassment and international attention, they'll need to find a compromise on the quick. Bardstown's Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which draws 50,000 brown liquor fans from around the world and a $4 million or so economic impact for the area, started yesterday. Stay tuned. Oh, and thanks to labor reporter and pal Kim Kelly for the heads up on this. A Bud Light-sized hole in the balance sheet. Rabobank beverage researcher Jim Watson recently tweeted a graph of a couple Anheuser-Busch InBev valuation metrics that suggests the company's North America division has basically been treading water for the last half decade. It's a bar graph with revenue and EBITDA uh, figures from 2015 and 2020 for AB InBev North America, and 2015 and 2020 are basically identical in both measures. Virtually no change. Clearly, this is a very narrow snapshot of the massive multinationals' books, and clearly I'm not a finance guy, so keep that in mind. But as Watson, who clearly is a finance guy, pointed out, ABI's biggest brand, Bud Light, has been losing market share and volume for years in the U.S., and Budweiser is so much of an afterthought here sales-wise that the firm didn't even bother doing a Super Bowl ad for its one-time king this past February. That spells trouble, and not just for the North American division. As Good Beer Hunting's Cape or Not detailed in a July 2021 story, ABI as a whole can't seem to cook up a breakout hit in-house, and it's staring down so much debt and regulatory scrutiny that it can't easily buy growth by acquiring promising startups. The dozen craft breweries ABI scooped up last decade are down about 3% since last year. That portfolio is fine, but as Bernant guesses, quote, it's not going to be the engine that drives ABI out of its debt spiral, close quote. I tend to agree. Michelob Ultra is a juggernaut, but not enough to plug the hole on its own, and Mick Ultra's hard seltzer extension has done about as well as Bud Light Seltzer, which is to say D's to sub D's. And while the company has made inroads abroad, the U.S. market is still key to its growth for now. 
making everything more urgent for the ABI's C-suite, writes Bernat, quote, one of its minority owners, the tobacco conglomerate Altria, has the option to begin selling its stake in October. Whether or not Altria sells its 10% share in ABI, worth more than $13 billion, is considered a bellwether of investor confidence in the beer company. Close quote. In other words, ABI needs a hit. And fast. Something tells me pumpkin spice hard seltzer just ain't it. Party Rock Volume 1 featuring Fingers. My talented pal Molly O'Brien, co-host of the And Introducing podcast, DM'd me this summer about her new passion project, which she called a print zine about party rock, a.k.a. all things fun in the time of the mid-2000s to early 2010s. She wanted to know if I had any personal war stories from that heady era that I might be willing to share for the project, and having just penned an essay on the summer of Loco, I was in the ideal frame of mind to oblige. Now the zine, Party Rock Volume 1, is here in all its late aughts glory. Inside you'll find an essay from Molly about Ur Party Rockers LMFAO, plus two interviews, one with me and another with Laura June Kirsch, the photographer and writer behind Romantic Low Life Fantasies, a forthcoming photographic retrospective of millennials and subcultures during the Obama era. Kirsch's photos, by the way, I'd never seen them before, but they're absolutely electric, and her book is available for pre-order now. By the time you're listening to this, the first run of Party Rock Volume 1 may have sold out, but Molly confirmed to me she'll be doing another run. So keep an eye on fingers for updates on that front. And there you have it. That was the newsletter in full from September 13th, 2021, that ran under the headline, The Sinister Politics of Pouring Beers for Dead Troops. This has been another bonus edition of the Fingers Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know by leaving a comment on fingers.substack.com. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, please, by all means, do that too. Where? You guessed it, fingers.substack.com. Signing off from Fingers Headquarters, it's your fearless Fingers editor, Dave Infante, reminding you scab bourbon tastes exactly how it sounds, which is disgusting. Fingers doesn't cross piggy lines, and neither should you.